All right, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our time in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes this week. Uh, We spent a, a couple, we spent last Sunday morning and Sunday evening working on the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, it is it is foundational to the remaining beatitudes. It is foundational that beatitude to our walk to our salvation. Um, and as we continue on in the beatitudes, we have to remember that we can't we can't take them individually. We can't pull one out and say. I'm going to apply this one this week or next week, or I need to be better at this one and take it out of the context of all the other Beatitudes. You, they're connected. They're greatly connected, and they sort of stair-step and build on top of each other. Um, we have to remember as we look at the Beatitudes, and I've said a few times, that it's not as if these are things we add to who we are But these are characteristics of a citizen of this kingdom that is coming, that has come with Jesus now on the scene. As he said, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this kingdom has citizens, the church, the body of Christ. And these beatitudes are characteristics of these citizens. And so we have to remember that. But we also have to remember your entrance into the kingdom is to be born again. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born of the Spirit. With that, I want to read, uh, we'll read one Matthew 5, 1 uh, through 4. And then we'll look at... Uh, the next beatitude. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Quick prayer. God, I pray by the power of your spirit, that you would guide me, Holy Spirit, and open up our, the eyes of our hearts and our ears that we might see the truth of the kingdom of God brought by Jesus Christ. Amen. So, if we're going to stair-step, if we're going to remember that these are connected, I just want to make sure that we understand poor in spirit. And you're thinking, well, we talked about this Two different occasions last week. I think we got it. But I just wanted to... I'm going to be pretty redundant as we walk through the Beatitudes. It's kind of... It, it's, I apologize. But at the same time, it's, it's necessary. But blessed are the poor in spirit. We remember that poor is to lack the ability to obtain what is necessary to live. If you're poor, especially in the time of Jesus, you probably had something hindering you from being able to work which hindered money going in your pockets, which hindered food getting put on the table. Okay, it, it, You weren't able to pay your bills. You weren't able to obtain the necessities of 
food, clothing, and shelter. And therefore, if you're poor and can't provide for yourself, you then must be dependent upon someone else. Someone who is poor, who cannot obtain what is necessary to live, they have to depend on others to live. We talked about Lazarus, not the one raised from the dead, but the poor man who is uh, at the gate of Abraham, the rich man. I mean, of, of the rich man. And Lazarus had sores all over him. Apparently, he could not obtain what he needed to live, so he begged for the crumbs of the rich man. His life depended on the crumbs of the rich man. So that is how we understand poor, how we understand spirit. We remember that that word spirit means breath or wind or breeze, and that when God created Adam, he molded him and fashioned him out of dirt, and Adam did not live until God breathed life into his nostrils. This was giving him life, giving him a spirit. And as Stephen in the New Testament is crying out to God as he's being stoned for preaching to the Jews, and he cries out as he is dying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His body being stoned and killed, but his spirit living on before the Lord. Now, all people are poor in spirit. All people are unable to obtain what is necessary for eternal life. All people are poor in spirit. And that which you must obtain for eternal life is righteousness. No one is righteous. No, not one. Everyone stands in trouble, spiritually poor before God. But how can they be blessed? When they acknowledge their poverty. When they declare spiritual bankruptcy. I'm in debt. I can't pay it. I need someone else. This are those who are poor in spirit and are blessed. And they, when they receive their blessing, they inherit the kingdom of God. We talked about Peter. Peter, when he saw Jesus and Jesus performed a miracle before him for the first time, what do we remember that Peter said? He fell to Jesus' knee and he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. That was his poverty, his being poor in spirit. But how was Peter blessed? We talked about this on Sunday night. How was Peter blessed? That even acknowledging his poverty to Jesus, his need, and he told Jesus to get away, Jesus stayed. The presence of God was his blessing. Those who know their poverty and spirit and their need of God to do something, those are the ones who have God who receive righteousness, not of their own, but of Christ and his righteousness. But we also said one more thing, and this is the most important thing we have to know as, as we look at scripture, as we live our lives, as we understand anything for the Christian and the Christian life. Why would anyone admit their spiritual poverty? Why would anyone be willing to admit that they're unworthy of the kingdom and of the king? 
because they have seen the king. It's because they have seen who God is. As Isaiah said, Woe, I am a sinful man. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Everything that we talk about, everything we know, everything that we have, every blessing we receive is based on the reality of who God is. God being holy, meaning he's like none other. God being righteous, he is perfectly perfect. He's perfectly perfect. I know that doesn't make any sense, but it seems that's kind of like a Jewish, uh, a Hebrew literary device of just saying things on top of, on top of each other. He is perfectly perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. And this is the foundation of anyone who sees that they need Jesus. It's because they see who God is. Now, for our next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. This is how it connects. Those who know the king, they know their spiritual poverty, it will be expressed in mourning and sorrow. As many people across Fulton County mourn this morning because of all the death that has taken place. We mourn, yes, for those things, but we mourn because of who we are in ourselves before God of the universe. Unworthy. Blessed are those who mourn. Now let's talk about it a little bit. Mourn. Let's keep it simple, all right? Like we talked about blessed simply just means happy. Mourn can just mean sad. Blessed are those who are sad, who are broken. Now, for a better understanding, to make sure we're all on the same page, let's look at Esther chapter 4 real quick, just to get a good example of what that word, and not in the context of what we're talking about, but just what it means to mourn when Jesus uses the word mourn. And Job would have been a good place to go, as we talked about this morning, as Job lost everything. He mourned when he lost his family and all of his possessions. But in Esther, we see it a little bit further in action. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. The evil Mordecai has schemed up to kill the Jews, basically. That's where we've gotten to at the end of chapter 3. Not Mordecai, Haman, sorry. Haman has schemed up Tricky, deceitful, in order to wipe the Jews from the world, basically. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who is a Jew, gets a whiff of this and see his response and we can understand what it looks like, feels like to mourn, okay? 4 verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth, which is itchy and uncomfortable, and and ashes. He put ashes on him and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This was him mourning. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province 
Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, many of them laying in sackcloth and ashes. So, let's turn back to Matthew, and let's think about this. The question we want to consider is, why would a citizen of the kingdom of heaven be sad? How is it connected to the poor in spirit? And we've touched on this a bit. Well, we're going to give it a little bit more. And what are they sad about? Now, I got an example for you. It's not a very good one, but it's something to consider mourning and who you mourn for and why you mourn. So let's, and this is, not everybody likes car. I'm not a big car guy, but everyone usually either drives a car and likes it to stay pretty or everyone knows vehicles to some degree, but some of us like cars way more than others. So imagine, imagine you are um, a, a older teenage, uh, young 20s, whatever the case may be, and, and your father has this beefed up old American muscle car. And it's the prettiest thing you've ever seen. It's the prettiest thing you've ever heard. It, I mean, and it's, it's your dad's treasure. Now, this illustration is idolatry, so let's, it's, let's not mimic it. But it's just, I'm showing you the point here of mourning and who we mourn to. Well, you want a big old nice muscle car like that, and you try your best to earn as much money as you can, but you're going to have to go get a loan. You're going to have to have the bank help you, and you're going to get something similar, as close as you can, but it's not your dad's muscle car, right? You get to the, you get to the bank, and they run your credit. Denied. You don't have the credit that it takes to buy that car. You get home, you tell your dad, and your dad pulls out the keys to his old muscle car, and he hands them over to you. Here you go. It's yours. Mine? Okay. And you're being so excited, so excited, you take it out the first night, and you go to Walmart, which you never want to take a new car to Walmart. But in your excitement, you jump out and you open the door and you slam it into a cart. And you just get sick. You just get sick. And you don't want to get out and you don't want to go look at the mark. It's like if I don't look at it, it's not there. But what makes you the most sick in that situation? Not necessarily the mark, but the fact that you just received this car from your father and you did not take care of it you weren't considerate of the gift that you received and the preciousness of that gift and you mourn and you're sad because of the love that you had received from your father see it's not just about the ding but it's about him who gave you that gift. The love and the goodness and the mercy that you received, yet your carelessness and inconsiderateness of him who gave it to you. 
Blessed are those who mourn. We're talking about God, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, our savior. You see, it's not a ding that we mourn. Our sin before the Father who gives all good and perfect gifts from above. It's not just a ding. Our sin is like dousing that car with gasoline and setting it on fire. The rebellion, the wickedness, the evilness of our sin towards a holy, gracious, loving God should bring us to mourning and sadness. And he was thinking, well, aren't these citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Haven't they been forgiven? Have you stopped sinning? And you might say, well, I've never done anything that equals dousing my dad's car in gasoline and setting it on fire. Well, I want you to know that Jesus begs the differ. As we read through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to show us that that small ding that you think isn't so bad is egregious. Oh, I've never murdered. Well, Jesus says, but you've had hatred in your heart. Oh, I've never committed adultery, but you've lusted after that person and committed adultery in your heart. And so we mourn who we are. We mourn our sin that we have committed before a God who is good and gracious. And so what does that look like to mourn? Four ways, and I'm going to go through them quickly. Four ways, four reasons, I should say, that we should mourn. Four reasons why we should mourn. And number one, we mourn our condition. We mourn our condition. See, we always think that the sinning is the problem. But the true problem is that we are sinners, not that we're sinning. We're sinning because of who we are, sinners. And we should mourn over this because God, our creator, did not create us to be in rebellion. He did not create us to live for our own ways and our schemes he did not create us that we follow the prince of the power of the world, that we seek out our own passions and desires and live like the world. No, we mourn who we are, sinners, with the nature to sin against God. And number two, and this, these, these are very close and similar and they all sort of go hand in hand, but number two, our inability, therefore, to obey. We should mourn our inability to obey because we know we see it in the Old Testament and in the New that God says, I'm holy, therefore, 
you be holy. Be holy as I am holy, he says. In the Old Testament and in the New, no way to escape it. That yet we wake up every morning and go to bed every night and we should remember just thinking about either the day before us or the day we just went through, I can't be holy. I cannot do it. And we should mourn our shortcomings. Number three, the consequences of our sin. And I am talked greatly about the fact, and David says in Psalm 51, that his sin is first and foremost against the Lord. However, we must understand that our sin affects others. And when we sin against the Lord, people are hurt. Consequences happen. And it should break our hearts that our lives affect others, that our sin affects others. And last, the fourth, we mourn the sin around us. So the first three, we must understand, is our own. And then we can mourn that which is taking place around us. To mourn what is taking place around us in sin and wickedness and not acknowledge the sin and wickedness within us is called hypocrisy. So the first three must be there, but the fourth follows. And the fourth happens because you are a citizen. You mourn what is happening outside of this world or outside in the world because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You have been shown uh, the truth You have been given wisdom. But here's a caution. We have a tendency, because of the first three, to be arrogant in that acknowledgement of the sin around us and not be humble, to not be meek, as we'll get to in the next beatitude. We should approach the sin around us in this world not with a puffed up chest, but broken and hurting because one, their sin is against God. That should hurt us. And two, because they will reap what they sow. And we must never celebrate the death of the wicked. God is glorified in his justice towards the wicked and we can celebrate in his glory. But to have a heart of arrogance and pride and hatred towards the world in the sense that is an example of love completely separate from Christ is sin. Let's turn to Romans 7 really quick and we can see all of these As Paul writes in Romans 7, and if you'll notice, Paul doesn't think much of himself. He doesn't. You see that in one of the letters to Timothy. What does he call himself? The chief of sinners. 
And here in Romans 7, you see his, his wrestle with his condition, his inability to obey, the consequences of his sin. And he's mourning because within himself he can't do anything about it. Starting in verse 15. I'm going to read. There's a, there's a, it's, it gets really wordy from 16 and 17. So I'm going to go 15, 18, and 24. Okay? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Jump down to 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my, or that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Let's read 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. In verse 24, he cries out in mourning, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Before we read his answer and the truth, I have to make sure to, to say, mourning does not save you. Your sorrow does not redeem you or cleanse you. Remember, this, the, the Beatitudes aren't a command. There's no imperative commands written in them. You cannot shed enough tears to wipe away your sins. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the blessing. This is the blessing. So you read this beatitude, you think about it this way. Blessed are those who mourn, or happy are those who who are sad. Happy are those who are sad. How can this be? Because they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You take that new car, you're reckless, and you damage it, and you come home, your father looks at you and you expect wrath and anger and you receive forgiveness and love. And imagine that drive home. Imagine that drive home just in turmoil of what is going to happen to me. What is he going to do? And then you get home and you receive love and forgiveness and your mourning and your sorrow and your anxiety turns to comfort and peace because of the one that is in front of you 
because God is a loving God who comforts those who mourn. Now, two things I want you to see, and then we will conclude here and go to the the Lord's table. The comfort of God is the comfort of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I can't break down all three of those right now, but I want you to see, if you're still in Romans, look at chapter 8 as he finishes his statement and he goes on to explain a little bit more. We see the comfort from the Father and the Son. Now here's what I want to say. There is immediate, eternal comfort from the triune God. Immediate, eternal. Or I could say it, right now, forever. We can have comfort for God, from God right now, forever. Look what I mean. Verse 1, chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Read it again. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, you could be removed from all the condemnation of your sin. You can be guilt-free before God, justified by the righteousness of Christ, and condemned no more because of Jesus, who He is and what He did. This is immediate and it is forever. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Today is always the day of salvation, justification, and comfort through Jesus Christ. Every day. Right now. Immediate. And when we are brought into Christ through faith, it is forever. To be united with Christ does not mean there is no condemnation today, but tomorrow when you wreck the car again, then you're going to be in trouble again. No. To be brought into Christ is to be made righteous before God. And it is forever. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. Look at, look at this in verse 32. Do not let anyone convince you that as a Christian, your sin today or tomorrow can override the work of Christ on the cross. Do not let anyone tell you that you must live to a standard in order for you to keep this guilt-free justification. Because guess what? If that was the case, then none of us would be free from condemnation.
And every single day, Christ would have to be sacrificed and crucified again and again if that was the case. The blood of Jesus Christ shed once for all time and he stood on the cross, he hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. And verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those who mourn, they will be comforted. There it is. You are given all things from the one who did not spare his son. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Don't be scared of that word. Do not be scared of that word. Who will bring charge against any of God's chosen? It is God who has justified you. You have not done anything to earn God's merit and favor. You do not stand before him justified legally based on anything that you've done, but on the sovereign love of God as he has applied the blood of Christ to you by the pouring out of the Spirit. And who shall bring a charge against you? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who, has raised, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So that that takes us to our next level of comfort, and I'll conclude here. We get comfort from uh, the triune God immediately, forever, but then every day until we see him. That just said that he who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is indeed interceding for us. So when you mess up that car again, When you sin against God again, the son who was dead, but then raised, ascended to the right hand of the father is interceding on your behalf. Be comforted today as you see your sin, as you see how it affects people as you see what it is before a holy God, be comforted that that, as you are united to Christ by faith, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And Psalm 34 says, for this everyday comfort, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Take heart that God is always near. And he's not near in this way for everyone. But just for him, his sheep, his children. That is the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, the comforter. You struggle tomorrow? You fly off the handle at home? Mourn your sin. Turn to the Lord. Confess. Be forgiven and comforted. You struggle with addiction and you lean to that thing that you need tomorrow. 
You're looking at the things that you should not look at tomorrow. Confess your sin. Mourn over your sin. And be cleansed and comforted. You look at the world around you and you see the mess that this world is in. This might seem backwards, but I want you to hear this. Take comfort in knowing that America is not the kingdom of God. Take comfort in knowing that America is not the kingdom of God. Take heart knowing that when this country fades or fails, it will, either in its own time or when Christ returns. When this country fades or fails, God's plan will continue. Babylon, Greece, Rome, think of all the kingdoms of these of this world, all the countries, and they do not last, and none represent the kingdom or the king. And the more you realize that you're just passing through this world, that this world is not your home, the more comfort you will find each and every day as the world and this country go in the wrong direction. Find comfort that the kingdom will come and God's will be done no matter what is going on around us. We should be people who mourn, mourn because of sin, mainly ours, but we're happy because of the comfort of God through Jesus Christ our Lord and the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 53, I'll read this and I'm done. Just a few verses. And upon reading this, um, we will turn to the Lord's table. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, we receive comfort because he ran from comfort on the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured. And the joy that was set before Christ was that we might be full of his joy. We might be full of his joy. We must believe this. The only way to be comforted by God is through belief in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that to believe and to walk away, that's not true faith. The Bible is very clear that those who believe confess that faith and they confess it in baptism and in that baptism they are joined to the body of Christ the pattern in scripture is belief baptism body to not be a lone ranger but to confess your faith 
among the church in baptism and to join in ministry with the church, with the church. And so if that's something that you have not done, I pray that the Lord would convict you in any of those avenues, belief, baptism, or joining the body, knowing that it is only the belief that we obtain eternal life. But the baptism and joining the body are the fruits of the belief. So with that, we come together at this table as the body of Christ. The people who come to this table have believed and have confessed. This is our remembrance of what Christ has done, but it is also a remembrance of who we are and our need as sinners. And so with that, Brother Dan, will you come?